If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and stand as you find that. First Timothy 2, and I'll be reading verses 9 to 15. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I'll pray. Lord, we again just thank you for all that you have written to us in your word, that we might be those who worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would know you and walk with you, and Lord, most of all, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. And we pray, God, that again, as we look at your word together, that we would hear your voice and yield to you, give our amen, God, to all that you've said, and to accept by faith, Lord, your word as good and acceptable and perfect. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if it looks like I'm dressed for a funeral, I am. My own. Figured if I'm going to preach this passage, I should be prepared to be shot while I'm preach, preaching and, and then be dressed for my own funeral so Patsy doesn't have to go get a suit. Started um, two weeks ago talking about um, leading into this, and then I went into a witness protection program, and um, I fled to Canada, not realizing there was an extradition arrangement between Canada and the United States, and so I'm back. But um, in all seriousness, I've, um, it is a serious passage and, and one that is often difficult um, but I appreciate the privilege of being able to handle it, and particularly with folks that I know are eager to hear um, from God and to um, put into practice what he says. We've been, in our look at First at Timothy, it's obvious from the very beginning that there is a problem in this church with false teachers, and Paul's named two of them at the end of the first chapter and said they need to go. And when we look at all of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and even at some of the other epistles, principally 1 Corinthians, um, we can kind of get an idea of what was going on with those false teachers. And um, some of it, just a list here of things um, that kind of helps inform why Paul is even bringing this subject up here um, about women. It would seem that the false teachers were sowing um, dissension and, as we saw in the first chapter, preoccupied with things that aren't central, things that aren't central to Christ and faith in Him, trivialities. They were also stressing an asceticism where they felt they were teaching that you can be more spiritual by abstaining from marriage, from foods, and um, from sexual relations with your spouse. 
they were persuading many of the women. They seemed to have been particularly um, successful in getting women to buy into what they were saying because Paul addresses women in particular um, quite a bit in this book as, as well as in 1 Corinthians. And so they were persuading women to, to follow those doctrines, and in that they were encouraging them to seemingly to abandon the traditional female and male roles because we have been made one in Christ. So Paul taught clearly we are one in Christ. We talked about that two weeks ago. But that doesn't mean that all distinctions between male and female have been abolished any more than it means that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are absolutely one, have no distinctions between them. And so Paul roots much of what he says about male and female relationships with each other in the Trinity itself. And as we spent some time looking at that two weeks ago, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are absolutely equal in essence. One is not superior in essence to the other. But they have different roles. They are different persons with um, different ways that they relate to each other. And obviously there is... There is hierarchy, authority, submission, and obedience within the Trinity. And so those things are not consequences of sin. If they were, they wouldn't be in the Trinity. These women seem to be um, of the mindset that because men and women are one in Christ, that there is no distinction between husband and wife and no distinction between male and female in the body of Christ. And so Paul needs to speak to that. So there's an encouragement um, in Paul's letters to, to not abstain from marriage. Um, and he counsels young widows in chapter 5 um, to marry and have children and, um, and to turn away from following Satan. So clearly they have bought into this lie that there's a way to spirituality that, that is contrary to the, to the basic roles that God has established for us. So, jumping into the text here, this paragraph, um, he starts out by saying, likewise. And in the previous paragraph, he had been talking to men and saying that he wants men everywhere, verse 8, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And now he says, likewise, I want women. And so he, the likewise is, I have something I desire, something I want for both men and women. And with men, I want them to be praying constantly in every place and to do so without dissension and with holiness. And women, he says, I have also something that I want you to do. And from the outset here, I think it's worth observing that even as it would not be reasonable to think that Paul wants men, when he says, I want men in every place to pray, that he's only thinking about Sunday morning at the 11 o'clock hour. He means all the time. And in the same sense, when now he's addressing modesty and discretion in the way that a woman clothes herself, he wouldn't be talking about only on Sunday morning. But this is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of prayer and it's a lifestyle of modesty and discretion in how a woman is to dress. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly 
and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Clothing communicates. Um, Anybody knows that. In Paul's day, if you wanted to express that um, you were in repentance, you would dress yourself in sackcloth and ashes. And I don't think that obviously happened very, to- very much, but if you saw somebody going down the street with sackcloth and ashes, you would know he's repentant, he's grieving, he's mournful about something. A widow dressed like the wi- a widow. The scripture tells us that a prostitute will dress like a prostitute. In Proverbs, the prostitute comes, the, the adulterous woman comes dressed as a harlot. So clothing communicates, and that has always been true. It will always be true. And it is true for men, and it is true for women. I think that Paul could have gone into a lot more detail and explanation of why he's saying this, and he has not, so we have to be careful to not give too much explanation where he hasn't given any. But we all understand that, um, generally speaking, men are more visually oriented than women are, Women, generally speaking, are more responsive to touch than what men are. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he'll say in 1 Corinthians 7, I do not, um, a, a man, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. A lot of our modern translations have said it's good for a man not to marry, or it's good for a man not to be sexually involved with a woman. Those are interpretations. He literally just says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And it seems to be because... Again, I'm I'm conjecturing some here, but it seems that Paul, under the inspiration of God, is writing with the understanding that women respond to touch much more readily than what men understand. And so men should respect that and watch how they handle women. And it is probably with that in mind and also um, with regarding women as being more, uh, more important than men, treating them more highly than, than men, that it used to be that one of the basic rules of etiquette and manners was that a man would never even extend his hand to shake hands with a woman. Um, we've kind of forgotten that in our day. But the reason for that, again, was twofold. A man does not have the right to presume to touch a woman. If she, that, that it is just presumptuous to do that, it's wrong to do that. Keep your hands off. And secondly, the person of higher station is the one who extends their hand to you. And so it's men treating women more highly than themselves. If the president were here, you would be instructed, all of us would be instructed, if by his advanced team, when the president comes, do not extend your hand to him. If he wants to shake hands with you, he will extend his hand to you. It's just protocol. We've kind of forgotten those things. Well, there's also an, an acceptable way for a woman to dress in view of how God has made men. And we are more visually oriented. I, I can't help but think that that is part of what is informing Paul when he writes this. It is a major distraction to men when a woman is dressing for attention and is not dressing, dressing modestly or discreetly. A woman, a married woman, should dress for her husband, not for other men. Um, 
that's kind of hard to define sometimes, but that's where conversation needs to take place and ultimately the Holy Spirit needs to be consulted. I remember in years past on, on this issue, hearing older men and women tell us, before you leave the, your house, you should stand in front of a mirror and say, Holy Spirit, is this acceptable? And he will inform you. But a lot of times we just don't care to ask. But God will let us know. And many times, if we don't listen to the Lord, he'll speak to us through other people. I think the words modestly and discreetly are very significant because it means not the opposite would be to dress in an, in an extreme way and in a way that draws attention to self. And I personally am of the mind that with just about everything Scripture says, we can go to extremes. And you can be so extremely modest and discreet that you are no longer modest and discreet. If the, because the idea here is to not draw undue attention to yourself. And I think that we see that as well, where there's, there are segments and elements of, of the evangelical church, Christian society, where in the, in the intent to follow Scripture and to be modest and discreet, a woman can become so extreme in her dress that she's doing the opposite of what she intends. She is, again, drawing undue attention to herself. And the idea is to not do that. And, and, and again, this speaks to all of the body of Christ, and I think it especially speaks to young people, male and female, that we should not be identifying with a small segment of society in how we dress and behave. And so when it comes to long hair, I know for a long time, it's not much of a debate any longer, but back in the 60s and 70s, it was huge, you know, how long a guy's hair could be. And, and um, I remember that being a big issue in, in our house when I was growing up. So my dad cut our hair every two weeks, whether we liked it or not. Um, and, and all the other kids would come around and watch because they, they thought it was pretty funny. We didn't. Um, but one of the arguments that was given was, Jesus had long hair, why can't I? And, and even as a junior high boy, I knew that was poor reasoning. Um, Jesus' hair was appropriate for the time that he was living in. And he, he did not have purple hair in the time that he was living in. He, he didn't have rainbows or, or, or um, lightning bolts cut in the side of his head. Um, that would have been extreme. He could have done it. It would have not necessarily been sin. And there's, and it, but it would have been to draw undue attention to himself. You wouldn't have picked Jesus out of a crowd, in other words. And to me, I mean, it just there's so many things that, that where this applies. As you've heard me say, with our camp staff in the summers, we tell them, when you're greeting the parents, don't chew gum and don't wear sunglasses. Because that doesn't convey confidence to the parents who've never seen you and they're dropping off their eight-year-old with you for a whole week. And you're standing there, they can't see your eyes, and you're smacking on gum. That doesn't communicate what we want communicated. So take the gum out of your mouth and take the sunglasses off. And it's good to learn to say yes, sir, no, sir, as well. And so these are just things that, so that are talking about, again, you don't relate to people 
the broadest spectrum of people by conducting yourself in a way that's extreme, by bringing undue attention to yourself. It hinders your testimony for Christ because the first thing and sometimes the only thing people can think about is how we're presenting ourselves. unfortunately. We know God looks on the heart. Amen. But men don't. They look on the appearance. And so if my appearance is, is, is a roadblock to my words, then the appearance needs to change. And we can say one thing by our appearance and another thing by our words, but the appearance speaks louder than our words. And, and, and again, specifically to women, the appearance should not be just simply that which is bringing undue focus to self. In this society, the church had great disparity in income and wealth. There were those who were free and very rich. And there were those who were slaves and had very little. And it would have been difficult for those that were slave and poor to come to a church where the rich and free were flaunting their wealth in the manner that they dressed. It would have been inconsiderate of them. And, and so that may be partly of what was informing Paul also as he wrote this. He's thinking about the body as a whole, which we should do whenever we come together. We're not just thinking about ourselves, but we're thinking women, thinking about their brothers in Christ, and also thinking about their other sisters in Christ. And how, how am, is my dress impacting those that I'm with? So the issue is not per se, the braided hair, the gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather it's what is being communicated by those things. Is it a flaunting of self, an advertisement of self? Am I, is, is the woman dressing for men other than her husband? And is she dressing in disregard of those sisters that have quite a bit less financially than what they have? On the other side, to be positive, Paul says, rather the focus, instead of being on the external things of dress, should be rather on good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. That's where the emphasis should be. So you're not known for the new dress or the expensive jewelry or whatever, but you're known for your godly walk with Christ. That's the easy part. Now verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to speak. She is to remain silent in the churches. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, a woman can pray and prophesy in the church. So that's no contradiction. Paul is putting teaching in a different category than praying or prophesying. Now that's worth the study in itself. We typically think prophesying would be higher than teaching. But in the New Testament, that is not the case. All are to prophesy. In Acts chapter 2, when they are speaking in tongues, the main emphasis there is not on the tongues, but on the prophesying. 
And Peter says, this is in fulfillment of what Habakkuk said, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. All are going to prophesy. Prophesy is not necessarily talking about future events. Much of Scripture has nothing to do with future events. But all of Scripture is written by prophets and is therefore prophetic. So prophesying is, is, is more simply allowing God to be the one that is speaking through you. And that is our birthright, as it were, as Christians with Christ living in us, where we have his mind. He is able to communicate through us many times without us even knowing it. But that is to, to have God communicate through you is the essence of prophesying, particularly when we are speaking concerning Christ. So the book of Revelation says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophesying. So when we are giving testimony of Christ, that's prophetic. That is different. That is something all Christians should be doing. But that is different than teaching. Teaching cuts a higher profile in Scripture. It is the teacher that will incur a stricter judgment, Scripture says. It doesn't say the New Testament prophet is going to incur a stricter judgment, but the teacher is. And so Scripture consistently puts this at a higher level with greater responsibility than prophesying does. So women are not being silenced. It's not that their voice can never be heard in church. I don't believe for a minute that's what Paul is saying. Women are to be treated as equal heirs of the grace of life. They are not to be demeaned. They are not to be regarded as they have nothing of worth to say. They are to be heard and listened to and embraced as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Understanding, I believe, that God does not look at, at a person's sex when handing out spiritual gifts. That the gifts are distributed to men and women alike. When it comes to the gift of pastoring, if there is a gift, and I believe there is of that, then even though she would not be in a, in a position, an office as pastor, that's not to say that she can't have a pastor's heart for people. So Paul, when he says a woman is to quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, I think he's getting at the issue of the role distinctions between men and women. That when it comes to the family and when it comes to the church, the family of God, that a woman is to not usurp the place of male leadership. It's not that she can't give her input, and it certainly says that a man cannot learn from a woman and should silence her. That's nonsense but that she should not put herself in a position of instructing men, particularly when it comes to matters of doctrine and scriptures. So, in the next verse, and it's in following with what he just said in verse 11, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. One paraphrase that I came across that seems to get the gist of it let the, let the women learn with full submission. But full submission means also that I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And I want to point out here, too, that 
When Paul says, let a woman quietly receive instruction, as countercultural as that may seem today, if we just stop and listen to what he's saying in that first part, Paul is not opposed to a woman receiving instruction, to a woman having education. He assumes that women will be educated, that women will be taught, not like the Muslims who were killing little girls for going to school. This is not the mindset of God or Scripture and certainly not the mindset of Paul. He assumes that women will be learners. It's not a problem for women to be well-versed in Scripture and, and to, to have a desire to learn it and in turn to teach other women and children as the Scripture is going to say later. But he says, I do not allow a woman to teach. The first word there could be translated, as some translations put it, I do not permit. I do not allow. It isn't permitted. One of the things that's often raised today, and I first came across this when I was a student at His Hill, and we had a, a woman guest lecturing. I was 18, and, um, and so I, I, the average age that year was 25, and I wasn't sure how to respond to it. But I quickly became convinced by the older students in the classroom, both men and women, that this was not right. That this married woman was teaching us a Bible class. And so we got very rude about it, which was unfortunate. And um, my brother and I, he was a student with me and he was one of the older students, uh, brought a newspaper to class, and we just started reading the newspaper while she was teaching. Totally wrong response. Um, it was ugly. And it hurt that woman, and she was a godly woman. And as we were called to account, as we should have been for our rude behavior, our justification for it was um, simply she's a woman. Well, her justification for what she was doing was that she was teaching under the authority of her husband. Well, that sounds real good. So she's not usurping her husband. She is teaching under his headship. So she acknowledged his headship in every way. And I don't doubt it for a minute. But the problem is, if the Apostle Paul says, I do not permit it, then who has the right to permit what Paul forbids? It just, no man has that authority. So as a husband, I do not have the biblical authority. I don't have the right to have my wife do what Scripture forbids. It would be like me telling one of the students at his hill, I, Charlie McCall, give you the permission to drive 70 miles an hour through comfort. And then they get pulled over. What were you thinking? And they say to the police officer, Charlie McCall at his hill gave us permission. And that police officer is rightly going to say, who is Charlie McCall? What right does he have to give you permission for what the law forbids? I have no right. I don't have that kind of authority. So no man, whether husband or pastor, has the right to permit a woman to do what Paul himself forbids. And so he says... I do not allow it. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. I was with somebody this past summer 
he is theologically trained and he is of the strong position opinion that women can be elders and pastors of a church. He, in fact, is a pastor, and they have satellite churches, and one of the satellite churches is pastored by a woman. And so we were talking, and I said, what do you do with 1 Timothy 2, where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? And he says, well, it's very simple, Charlie. It says, a woman. So Paul had in mind a woman in Ephesus, and not all women. I'm glad you're reacting to that, because I did too. And I'm going, you know, I've never heard that interpretation before. And it is so unnatural to the text. And so I was dumbfounded, I didn't even know what to say, other than I've never heard that before. And so I got my Bible out later, and I started just going through First Timothy And all the occasions where he says a man or a woman that you would never take to mean a particular individual. So, for example, just some of them, back in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's not a particular individual. That speaks of all individuals. Verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man. That's not speaking of one man, but for all righteous men. And then here in, in, well, in chapter 3, where he speaks, verse 2, an overseer. In verse 4, he must be one who. In verse 5, but if a man. And no one takes, this means just one particular man in Ephesus. And then you come over to chapter 5. Do not sharply rebuke an older man. In verse 5, now she who is a widow. And and then verse 9, let a widow. And it goes on and on like that. There are at least 10 different times just in 1 Timothy where a person is referred to as a man, a woman, a widow, a righteous person. And there's no reason from the text to think he is talking about one particular person in exclusion of all others. That is a very forced way to arrive at your position. That is reading your theology into the text. So he means women in general. And then he says, I do not allow a woman to teach. Well, to teach what is often the question. Can she teach math to a man? Can she teach English to a man? And I would say, yes, that when the New Testament and particularly the epistles is using the word teach, it has in mind the scriptures, doctrine. And so as one person wrote in the pastoral epistles, teaching allows the the restricted sense of authoritative doctrinal instruction. And then there are a number of passages in the epistles where that is true. And that's where we first have to go, is Paul's letters, and particularly the pastoral letters. How is he using teaching? And he is consistently using it as teaching Scripture. So there's no problem here, I would say, with a woman teaching math or English or any other subject. But when it comes to the spiritual things of the Word of God, Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach a man in that respect. Or exercise authority. And again, some would say, well, what Paul is forbidding is authoritative teaching by a woman. She can teach, she just can't teach authoritatively. 
And again, sometimes the gymnastics that we go to to try and get away from the plain meaning of the text, even when it, all teaching is authoritative, we just can't get around it. it. It cuts that kind of profile in Scripture. But if you mean domineering type of teaching where you're lording it over people, well, is it okay for a man to do that? It's not. In fact, Scripture says that you are not to lord it over those who are in your charge. And so that's not permissible, whether it's a man or a woman, to have that kind of dictatorial attitude while we're teaching. But they are two, grammatically, these are two separate issues, teaching or exercising authority. Because you can be in a position of authority where you're not teaching. And you can be teaching where you're not necessarily holding a position of authority. For example, elders, which is the next thing he's going to come to. That is a position of authority. And every elder ought to be able to teach, but not every elder is going to be teaching. And that's true in most churches. And so when it comes to that kind of position where a woman is in a place of authority, though she is not teaching, and it is a spiritual authority, and it's over the body of Christ, it's not permitted. This has been the historical position of the church. Only in just the, as we know, those of you that have white hair, like me, we know it's been in our lifetimes that the church has changed on this. That the church has historically for 2,000 years not allowed for women to be pastors, elders of a church. And that has been true in the parachurch as well. One of our sons went to a, a Torchbearer Bible school and and he was given permission before he went to the school to not sit under the teaching of a woman Bible teacher they had. And even though he was given advanced permission for that and told that it wouldn't be a problem, it was a problem. And, and they required him to write a paper defending his view on not sitting in on a woman teacher. Nobody else had to write the paper, just him. And as he wrote his paper, and he told me about his assignment, I said, you know... I, I'm just interested how many other Bible colleges and seminaries have women teachers and have women presidents. And so I got on the web, and I must have looked at, at 10 to 20 different Bible colleges and seminaries. And only a very small percentage, even today in the 21st century, with all of our talk about egalitarianism, only a very small percentage had women teaching Bible. Many of them had women teachers, some even teaching Greek and Hebrew, but very few had women teaching Bibles. And then of women in leadership and authority, none of them had a woman president to this day. And so it just still, for all of our talk, that there should be no distinctions between men and women when it comes to these kinds of roles that is still not the practice, at least in the parachurch with Bible colleges and seminaries. For the most part, women are not teaching Bible, and they are not in positions of authority in respect to being the president of those schools. So what about secular society? Paul doesn't say. We don't know. We know here he's talking to the body of Christ. Just want to step through a little bit more and then make some more observations. He says, again, when he speaks, I believe when he says to remain quiet, 
It's in respect to exercising a teaching or authority role over the male leadership. It's not that her voice can't be heard, that her opinion is unimportant, but, it, but she should not assert herself to supplant the authority of the male teacher or the male um, authority. And then he gives his reason. And that's why these reasons are why we started where we did two weeks ago with Genesis. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. A good parallel verse with the essence of what Paul is saying there is John 1.30, where John the Baptist says concerning Jesus, And this is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. You hear what John's saying? Jesus is higher than me. He has a higher rank than I. For he existed before me. Okay? Now go back here, 1 Timothy 2.13. It was Adam who was first created. So the priority of Adam in being created first gives him headship over his wife. He has the higher rank. And that's just one of several things that would that be proven there expressed in Genesis 1 and 2 that demonstrate the headship of the husband over his wife. Having said that, Paul is very clear in Scripture that even, and he says this in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that even as Christ is the head of every man, a man is the head of his wife. So there is nothing in Scripture that says that every man is over every woman. That is not biblical. But the husband is the head of his wife. And, and, and within the church, there is male leadership as a picture of Christ's headship, one who is male. But it would, it's important, even in the church, for the male leadership to understand that, that that leadership is not the head taking the place of the husband. The husband is the head of that woman. So... Here when he says remain quiet, he is not dismissing her. He is not diminishing her. He is, the problem is that because of their view of being one in Christ, which they are, they are thinking there is no role distinction between male and female, and that is not the case. It was Adam who was first created, demonstrating headship. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Now, that's a hard one. Now, I have heard women say women are more prone to deception than men are. I'm too smart to say anything like that. (laughs) And I don't believe it. But I can see where you could read this passage and come away with the conclusion that women are more prone to being deceived than men are. Personally, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. So I'm going to read a a long paragraph here that I really appreciated that speaks to this. Eve stands not as a type of Ephesian women who were teaching false doctrine, but as a type of Ephesian women who were being being deceived by false doctrine. Hence the need to warn them about learning in quietness and full submission. 
Paul says nothing here about Eve's teaching of Adam, which had this been the point, he could have easily done. Moreover, there is no evidence in the pastoral epistles that women were teaching these false doctrines. They, had, they, were, they were following the false doctrines, but there's no evidence they were teaching them. If the issue then is deception, it may be that Paul wants to imply that all women are, like Eve, more susceptible to being deceived than men. And that is, and that is why they should not be teaching men. While this interpretation is not impossible, we think it unlikely. For one thing, there is nothing in the Genesis accounts or in Scripture elsewhere to suggest that Eve's deception is representative of women in general. But second, and more important, this interpretation does not mesh with the context. Paul, as we have seen, is concerned to prohibit women from teaching men. The focus is on the role relationship of men and women. But a statement about the nature of women per se would move the discussion away from this central issue, and it would have a serious and strange implication. After all, does Paul care only that the women not teach men false doctrines? Does he not care that they not teach them to other women? So you get the point. If women are more prone to being deceived, that's why women should not teach men, then why did he say that women should not teach anyone at all? But he doesn't say that. More likely then, verse 14 in conjunction with verse 13 is intended to remind the women at Ephesus that Eve was deceived by the serpent in the garden precisely in taking the initiative over the man whom God had given to be with her and to care for her. In the same way, if women at the church at Ephesus proclaimed their independence from the men of the church, refusing to learn in quietness and full submission, seeking roles that have been given to men in the church, they will make the same mistake Eve made and bring similar disaster on themselves and the church. This explanation of the function of verse 14 in the paragraph fits what we know to be the general insubordination of some of the women at Ephesus and explains Paul's emphasis in the verse better than any alternative. So you get the gist, I hope, of what he's saying there. So he's just simply saying, to read it again, he says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. The transgression of putting herself in a position above her husband and not being, not being submissive to her husband, or, but rather stepping out against her husband, over her husband. She was the one who was instructing him. It's good. Look what I've done. You can eat it. And it was a role reversal that took place. And so what Paul is saying is, don't be like Eve by repeating her mistake. Don't make her mistake. Look at the disaster that came into this world when she reversed the role order and said, why can't I teach you? And he's saying, now you Ephesian women are in danger of doing the same thing. This is not going to bode well for the church. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love with sanctity and self-restraint. Another difficult verse. And in here, the word preserved, as translated in the New American Standard, is literally the Greek word saved, sozo. So New American Standard and many of the other modern translations go, we can't go with that. Good for them. Because the word saved, in our minds, 
typically think we think of saved from sin. So a woman's going to be saved from sin if she bears children right. So now we have salvation by works. Well, that's not right. And so that's not what Paul's talking about here. That Greek word sozo is actually a very broad word. And typically, it doesn't even have the, the meaning of being saved from sin. It can mean to be healed. It can mean to be delivered from any kind of trial or calamity. And he's just talked about that don't be deceived like Eve, following into her deception to put yourself over your husband, to transgress the roles that God has established. And he says, nothing good can come from that. You can be kept safe from that from all the problems that came into this world because of Eve reversing the roles, you can protect yourself from difficulties and problems if you live within the roles that God has established. And so, it's, and that, and so probably the preserve through the bearing of children is just a, a, a figure of speech where part represents the whole. And synecdoche, I think it's called. Meaning, if you just live within the roles that God has given you as a woman and not try to compete with men or be a man or think that you have to be like a man, you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble. You're not going to ever regret it to live as the woman that God's created you to be. Obviously, not all women can have children. Not even all women are going to be married. So that's not what he's speaking about. But he is speaking about reversing the roles where somehow a woman just thinks that everything that a man does, including within the church, and particularly within the church, ought to be open to her and that she's being slighted, she's being abused, she's being neglected. If she can't be the pastor, elder of the church, just as a man can. If she can't teach those classes just as a man can, somehow she's being treated as less than a woman. And Paul says, don't be deceived. You're going to create more problems than you're going to solve. And to live within the order that God has established is not going to hurt you. So let me just make some, some observations here then about this text. Number one, there is nothing in this paragraph that's cultural. Just not there. So to say that Paul, what Paul wrote for the Ephesians is not applicable for us today. It's a major stretch. You can do that with all of Scripture. There is nothing in this passage that would indicate that this is cultural. Nor is Paul even doing anything to infer that women are less capable or less competent than men. This is not an issue of competence. Some would say, well, in this day, women just weren't educated. That's not even true. Some of the most educated people in the Greek-Roman society were women. That's a fact. And so if it's, but many of the men weren't, weren't educated either. And so is a man qualified to teach just because he's a man and he's uneducated? But an educated woman isn't just because she's a woman? That's nonsense. This is not about competence. There's nothing here about that. Elizabeth Elliot one time wrote, I did hear the bell, so just a couple minutes more. Elizabeth Elliot one time wrote in respect to this, male leadership is not an achievement. It is an assignment. And I appreciated her saying that, coming from a woman. Male leadership is not an an achievement. It is an assignment. It is what God has assigned. And as we saw two weeks ago, because it portrays God who relates to this world as male. 
And in female, we respond to his initiative. This is not about gifting. There's nothing here that mentions spiritual gifts. And it's not because she's more easily deceived. None of those things are the case. It's because it's not God's design. It's as simple as that. The principal male headship is to be recognized and honored in the body of Christ with respect to teaching, doctrine, and scripture, and to exercising authority. And very briefly, then what about the parachurch? My day job is a parachurch. His hill. We are not an organized local church. But we are the body of Christ. So I've had to deal with this a lot, especially within torchbearers, because to my knowledge, and I hope I'm mistaken, but to my knowledge, I am the only director in torchbearers currently who feels that women should not teach men at the Bible college level. Now, there used to be more, but they've all gotten out, and I'm the only one left, so I'm the dinosaur. And one of the things that I'm trying to impress upon my fellow directors as I'm given opportunity in Torchbearers is that this is not a theological difference. It is not a philosophical difference that I have with them. Because all of my fellow Torchbearer directors, to my knowledge, would agree with everything I've said in this sermon so far. They would agree in principle that there, when it comes to the church and it comes to the home, it is to be male leadership. So I don't know any of them that are in favor of women being pastors or elders of a church. So we are in agreement. Fundamentally, philosophically, theologically, we are in agreement. But how far does that apply? That's the difference. And it is a difference merely of application, not of theology or philosophy. Fundamentally, we start at the same place. Now, the reason I want to stress this is because you will come across people who will, hear, who will say, I believe that women should be able to teach Bible at his hill. And another man who says, I believe women should teach Bible at his hill. And they say the same thing, but you, if we're not discerning, we won't realize they are not starting from the same place. And a man who says, I think a, man, a woman should teach Bible at his hill... Maybe the man who says, and I think she should be the pastor or elder of a church. That is a different starting place. But my starting place is the same as the majority still, it would seem, I hope I'm right, of evangelical community. We are still very uncomfortable with women being pastors and elders of a church. That is changing, I understand, but the scripture hasn't changed. And there's a reason why God has said this. The, de- the debate is how far does the application go and that there are differences between men and women. And that's going to be a debate we will have until Jesus comes again. I understand that. And I have to be willing to, to give as far as recognizing these guys are not heretics. And I hope that they're willing to give and not call me a heretic when our difference of opinion is over an application and not over what Scripture is teaching foundationally. Does that make sense? Sorry if it doesn't. I'm going to keep moving. <laughs> Secondly, some would say, well, Paul was excluding Bible colleges and seminaries, even adult Sunday school classes in a church. Well, how could he be excluding what didn't even exist? 
He can't be mindfully ignoring Sunday school classes, Bible colleges, and seminaries when they didn't even exist in his day. So it would be more appropriate to assume that Paul, when he's speaking to the body of Christ, is also assuming that this applies to all flavors of the body of Christ, all expressions of the body of Christ. Modesty would apply to all expressions of the body of Christ. Praying would apply to all expressions of the body of Christ. Even when it comes to elders in the next passage, typically the, per, the parachurch has said, we need to have men in leadership who meet the qualifications of an elder, even though we are not a church. So why would that not also be true when it comes to women teaching in the parachurch? I don't see anything in the passage that would limit it But nonetheless, I acknowledge that is an argument from silence. But it's also an argument from silence to say that she can when Paul doesn't speak specifically to the parachurch. But Paul's appeal, basis of appeal, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over his man, he doesn't even appeal to the church. What does he appeal to? Creation and the Trinity. And so that, again, would seem to extend this to where if the body of Christ is being expressed in a parachurch, then what is, what is true for the body of Christ should be true for the parachurch. Some people say, well, what about missionaries? And I'm almost done. M- women have been missionaries. This is one of the things that Major Thomas talked to me about. Major Thomas one time told me privately, I wish I'd had it recorded, but he says, Charlie, I believe that God has given the final word to men. In other words, male headship. Amen. But then he said, but God has used missionary women for 2,000 years. And again, amen. Don't have any problem with that. But history also tells us that mission agencies never sent women out to do men's ministry. That is a fact. They sent women to the mission field to minister to women. And that, can you imagine today a mission agency sending a woman to a Muslim country to minister to men? It's not going to happen. And it has never happened. The church has never sent women missionaries to minister to men. It has never happened. And when churches got started because those missionaries were sharing the gospel, which scripture never forbids a woman from sharing the gospel with a man. When that happened and churches got started, then the history of missions is clear that those women stood aside and let the young male leadership take over those churches. That has always been the way that it's been. Let me just finish by a couple quotes. Golda Meir of Israel confessed, that she suffered nagging doubts about the price her two children paid for her career. Adding, you can get used to anything if you have to, even to feeling perpetually guilty. And I am not of the mind that a woman cannot have a job outside the home. I don't think that's where Paul's going. I think Paul's saying that women need to understand that when it comes to the family and it comes to the church, They are not in charge. Men are. As politically incorrect that is, and I do have Kevlar on underneath my shirt. I'm kidding. That is what the scripture is saying. 
And so he's not saying that a woman can't have a job outside the home, but he's saying women need to understand they aren't men and men aren't women. There is to be a clear distinction between the two sexes. And God is glorified when women live as women and men live as men. That's all he's saying. And in the secular workplace, a woman can live as a woman to the glory of God. Or she can live like a man. And we've all seen examples of that. And it doesn't go well when men are trying to be women and women are trying to be men. Susanna Wesley, the incomparably brilliant and well-educated mother of sons who shook two continents, sons who took, shook two continents for Christ, wrote, I am content to fill a little space if God be glorified. She described her, her, how her now famous child-rearing commitment in these words, No one can, without renouncing the world in the most literal sense, observe my method. And there are few, if any, that would entirely devote above 20 years of the prime of life in hopes to save the souls of their children, which they think may be saved without so much ado. For that is my principal intention, however unskillfully and unsuccessfully managed. Napoleon was asked, what could be done to restore the prestige of France? This is Napoleon, a man considered to be demon-possessed by at least one man who met him on occasion. He replied, Give us better mothers. Mikhail Gorbachev, former president of the Soviet Union. We have discovered that many of our problems in, ch- in children's and young people's behavior, in our morals, culture, and in production, are partially caused by the weakening of family ties and slack attitude to family responsibilities. This is a paradoxical result of our sincere desire to make women equal with men in everything. That is a communist Marxist. He adds that Russia is now looking for ways to make it possible for women to return to their purely womanly mission. What Paul's saying here isn't a bad thing. God's design is good. It truly is. And whether we see it or not, like all that God says, It is to be embraced by faith. And I'm convinced, as with everything God says, if I don't understand it, but it's pretty clear in what it said, if I will simply by faith accept it, God will make me the biggest believer in the truth of what he has said. Because I will personally see the truth, the goodness of God's word. Romans 12, 2 says, The will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And that includes this. I'll close this in prayer.